Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 91. Bonus episode. Further up and further in. Hey everyone, it's David here. We are now about a month and a half away from the end of Season 4. And for the next two Thursdays, I wanted to share two episodes where Andrew appeared on the Upstream podcast with Shane Morris. Talking about all the things that he loves, C.S. Lewis, love of God, love of neighbor, you know the drill. (laughs) So there'll be an episode today, next Thursday, and in fact, our upcoming Tuesday episodes are also going to be ones hosted by Andrew. Uh, He's going to be speaking to some other book collectors about collecting C.S. Lewis first editions, and he's also got an interview with Max McLean from the Fellowship of Performing Arts, also coming up. But today's episode is from Andrew's appearance on the Upstream podcast. And you can find out more about that at colsoncenter.org. That's C-O-L-S-O-N-C-E-N-T-E-R, colsoncenter.org. And this episode was last published on January 5th, 2021. Uh, And here's the introduction. Andrew Lazo is a C.S. Lewis scholar known for his expertise in Lewis's Till We Have Faces, Lazo delivers a strong apologetic that Lewis's chief aim was to explain love. Lazo carefully unpacks many of Lewis's books to reveal a push for humanity to love rightly. This love is bound in Christ's call for an ordered love of God and love of man. Enjoy. You're listening to Upstream with Shane Morris on the Colson Center Podcast Network. I'm Shane Morris. Welcome to Upstream. One of my favorite episodes so far has been my conversation with Andrew Lazo, an expert on C.S. Lewis, who gave me a tour through this incredible author's work and why it still matters so deeply today. As we start off the year, I wanted to share that conversation with you again. Andrew's enthusiasm for Lewis is obvious, and I hope it infects you as much as it did me. C.S. Lewis wrote that Christianity is an education in itself. And I actually would say much the same about Lewis, the way his corpus of books reintroduces modern people, even half a century later, to the God of the faith once delivered to the saints. Lewis was a sort of prophet to a joyless and skeptical age. He speaks to a time when humanity has been, in many ways, abolished, to a time when men have been gelded and their chests stolen, when their bellies have become their gods, and when they've forgotten the deep magic. This reluctant convert is worth studying because, as my guest today says, he can teach you not only what to think, but how to think. And that's what I want to talk about today with Andrew Lazo. Andrew is a speaker and author specializing in C.S. Lewis and the close-knit group of writers that he belonged to called The Inklings. He's one of the foremost scholars on the relationship between C.S. Lewis and another of the 20th century's greatest writers, J.R.R. Tolkien. And he's the author of Mere Christians, Inspiring Encounters with C.S. Lewis. And quite honestly, he could probably give you a tour of C.S. Lewis's home. And that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> Lewis, not his home. Andrew, welcome to Upstream. It's great to have you on. Thanks so much, Shane. It's such a joy to be with you and to, to meet another kindred spirit. It's great <laughs> to lean into some of these ideas, especially during the season we're facing. Absolutely. So why do you think C.S. Lewis is so enduring? What is it about this guy that makes him stand out among Christian writers of the last century? Yeah, it's a great question. And I've been thinking about 
the whole idea of the upstream podcast. And one of the things that struck me as I first began poking around with some of the things that you're doing is this quote from Lewis where he says, all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. And so I think that one of the things that makes Lewis so enduring is that he really touches on those kinds of things that strike deeply to the real core of us and they don't change with decade or century. So what are some of those issues that Lewis speaks to that are eternal that don't change from decade to century? Well, I think that one of the things that I've been working on in the last couple of years, you know, Lewis is famous for his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And he talks a great deal about joy and longing. But I think that in my recent work, I've been finding that Lewis looked at joy or desire or longing as pointing towards fundamentally the love of God hmm. and his embrace of the four loves. He even wrote a book by that four names, kind of four different Greek concepts of love. Lewis gets at the heart of things and helps us to understand what Jesus talked about in the two great commandments, to love God and to love one another. The other thing I think that makes him so incredibly endearing and enduring is the clarity with which he wrote. Mm. And I think that that has something to do with his favorite character in Narnia, Lucy. She saw everything first. She knew where everything was on the dawn treader. And Lucy stands for the lucid kind of clear sight. And so I think that what makes Lewis most enduring is clarity and charity you take that great old Latin sense of that word meaning love. He wanted the whole world to think clearly and to mostly, uh, most importantly, think clearly about love, love for one another and love for God. Wait a second. So I've never thought about this. Is there actually a meaning to the names of the four Pevensey children? Is Lucy supposed Sorry. to be lucid? I thought this podcast was only half an hour, man. We can go a long time. <laughs> there's no that. ceiling technically to how long we can go, but we're going to try to keep it to half an hour. But there's just so much you could dive into with Lewis. I mean, the, it's layer after layer of meaning. And I was going to ask you to get into the whole Michael Ward thesis and all that, but we can't just talk about Narnia as much as I'd like to. We have to, <laughs> we have to talk about the rest of the Lewis corpus. We can. You know, I've spent some time with Lewis's uh, former secretary, Walter Hooper, in his home in Oxford. Oh, and how he's cool. been gracious to invite me over every time. And once he showed me a map that he had on his wall, it was Lewis's map as a child. And it's a map of Italy. And in Italy, there's an, a town called Narni. And Lewis has underlined the name of this town. And believe it or not, there's a, a saintly figure from Narnia, St. Lucy. And so there's the Blessed Lucy of Narnia. And St. Lucy is the patron saint of eyesight and seeing clearly. So I think Lewis is really up to some things. So, so much and, that's not, not at the surface there. Absolutely. Andrew, you said that in C.S. Lewis, you found someone who thought about his atheism more thoroughly than you had thought about your Christianity. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, I came to Lewis in my 20s when I was kind of at the point of saying, I don't know if there's not more intellectual heft to Christianity. I'm just going to sleep in on Sunday and make up my own rules. And I got to know a wonderful musician, a guitarist named Phil Keggy who maybe many of your listeners will still remember, uh, fantastic guy. And we got to walking and talking together in the woods. And he was going through a great uh, phase of reading Lewis and Tolkien and, and lent me a couple of books by Lewis. And I, when I read Surprised by Joy, I saw the progress of his atheism and how carefully he had thought through that process. Years later, I actually discovered the first draft of Surprised by Joy, a book that Lewis wrote about his conversion to theism. And 
you have to remember that Lewis for half of his life was an atheist and an Oxford trained philosopher. And he really trusted in the role of reason. Peace be to the Kierkegaard, but I think that sometimes people make too much of the leap of faith. And one of the great gifts of the age of the enlightenment is that I think that it brought to the fore that we can trust the rational process. We can trust our minds. We can trust thinking. And Lewis himself was brought to Christianity, he said, by an almost entirely rational process. Christianity, I think, so often at least appears to me to people a disengagement of the mind. Mm. Uh, and you just have to leap blindly into faith. No, if a mind, like Dorothy Sayers called it, the mind of the maker, a thinking rational mind created the universe, we do well to think as best as we can about these things. And that's what really Lewis helped me do. He saved my intellectual life at a time when I really needed to learn how to think. He's so much like, uh, I have to make another Narnia reference, he's so much like Professor Kirk in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, isn't he? It's like we come to him with this expectation that, well, this is just the way the world is, you know? Stuff like this doesn't happen. Men don't rise from the dead. And he goes, what do they teach you in these schools? You know, it, ask the <laughs> questions. Use logic here. Does it make sense that there's any other explanation for this story we call Christianity? Well, then for the time being, we must assume that it's true. And that was sort of the intellectual process that he underwent himself. And on issue after issue after issue, you see this in Mere Christianity, where he works through Jesus' identity and where he works through the issue of morality itself. And he says that my objection to Christianity was that the world seems so immoral and cruel, but where had I gotten this idea of immorality and cruelty? None of it made any sense. So atheism was too simple. And so I, I just love that. That's fantastic. And yet, one of the quotes that's been a guiding light for me, not only in my career as a Lewis scholar, but I spent 10 years teaching high school English. And I would tell my students what Lewis said. He said that for a critical mind, the challenge is more often not to praise or dispraise, but to define and describe. Hmm. And so often he, we get into these binaries of good or bad, Democratic or Republican. Lewis would not say good or bad. He would say good, better, best, or bad, worse, worst. And a lot of the conversation, I think, assumes that we know what our definitions are and what we're describing when we speak to one another. Language is slippy and people use it in a slippery way. And the kind of precision towards language that he devoted himself to kind of lends to the fact that you can trust the rational process, but you have to start by defining your terms and knowing what you're talking about. And that's what Professor Kirk does. That trichotomy with Lewis is the same as that trichotomy in, in the Christianity. With Lucy. <laughs> and, and it's threefold, exactly. And he, I think he teaches us that so often we assume we know what we're saying, but we don't. And mm. he really invests in the importance of, of language and in defining those concepts. Well, let's look at the books here for a second, because... I've been told that they actually fit together, that Lewis's corpus is kind of one big cohesive project. Describe that for me and how you perceive that. Well, you know, I think that it's true. Owen Barfield, let me see if I can get this quote right. Owen Barfield was one of C.S. Lewis's best friends. And he said, what Lewis thought about anything is secretly present in what he wrote about everything. And so it really is this kind of cohesive mind going on. Part of that, Shane, has to do with Lewis's incredible memory. He remembered everything that he ever read. And it's astounding. There are a couple of different accounts from people who knew him. You could pull open a book from his shelf and read him a line, and Lewis could quote you the rest of the page. Hmm. The rest of the page. 
and he read all of the classics. And so he's got everything he read in Latin and in Greek and all of this stuff in his head. And he's constantly integrating it. It's interesting to read a letter and then an essay and then a poem and then a book that Lewis wrote all around the same time. And a lot of those same ideas are going on there. And so there really is this cohesion of his mind, partly because his entire library is present and available to him at any moment. And then the fiction and nonfiction fit together, don't they? You can almost read one beside the other. So you're reading one of the fictional works and then you can find the commentary for the inspired commentary, if you will, of this Lewis work in a Lewis nonfiction. Give us some examples of that, because I've got like three floating around in my head and I want to see if you have the same ones. (laughs) Well, I'm sure that you're thinking of where Lewis actually cops to it, right? He admits it in the preface and the introduction to that hideous strength. He says, this is a a modern fairy tale for grownups. And he said, what I'm doing in this novel is what I actually was trying to do in Abolition of Man. Mm which is a treatise on education from a couple of years earlier. There are these echoes all over the place. And in fact, in the last dozen years, I've been working really hard on Lewis's last novel called Till We Have Faces. And one of the keys that has kind of unlocked that maddening, mysterious book, Lewis called it far and away my best book, but my great disappointment with my critics. And one of the things that I found in Till We Have Faces is that Lewis quotes every single book that he's ever written every poem or every idea. And so you have to kind of think of him as this integrative author where there's a cohesion not only to his thinking, but it comes out in his books. Well, okay, so this brings up the landmine because for (laughs) me, honestly, I don't get till we have faces. I did not enjoy it at all. So I don't think I'm a true Lewis aficionado. I think I've missed the bus on here. At least that's what everyone tells me. What no, is no, he, no, you're on the bus. What is he doing there? <laughs> well, I, once again, I'm on the bus, but I'm, no, I'm, I'm still in purgatory. <laughs> I'm still somewhere in ghost land. I haven't gotten far enough up and in yet. <laughs> so tell no, me, what I, is it I, about Till We Have Faces? What, what is he doing there? It's a great question, but actually your reaction is spot on. And I think that in my experience traveling around the country and, and back in the UK as well, and writing and speaking on Lewis, and I've got some YouTube stuff on that, and I actually read Till We Have Faces aloud on Facebook Live every week and explain it on Saturdays. So there's some stuff that I've done about that just to kind of unpack that mystery and what people I've found, myself included, have is kind of till we have faces whiplash, right? We read a lot of Lewis, we come to this novel and we're totally confused. We're like, what was that that just flew over my head? Right. He was hiding a mystery, kind of like he was hiding the mystery of the planets in the Chronicles of Narnia, according to Michael Ward's fantastic theory, which I totally believe in. <laughs> and If Lewis's overarching underlying theme of everything was love, and I believe it was, and this is far and away my best book, that book is about love. And people missed it. So five years later, he wrote The Four Loves. But if you remember the first line of that book, she says, I am old now and have not much to fear from the anger of God. I have no husband. That's Eros or romantic love. No child. That's storgy or familial affection, love, right? Nor a friend, that's philia, yeah. friendship love, through whom the gods can hurt me. And that's the opposite of agape, the opposite of divine love. And so what you've got is this kind of screw tapian voice lying about the love of God. And the God in the novel is Aphrodite, whose son is Eros. Hmm. And the main character, Psyche, that word means the soul. 
So Psyche, the human soul, marries the son of the God of love, who himself is the God of love, which is what I talk about in church every Sunday. So he's talking about the love, especially the divine love, and how we really resist that. I think that the whole world, and I'm watching the political world in our country just tear itself to bits, and people enjoying hating each other. I think that some of that is just the devil really working as hard as he can to keep us from those two great commandments, loving God and loving each other, and the great realization of God's incredible deep love for us, which gets back, of course, to Aslan. Aslan embodies that image of love. And so that novel is actually about love. And if you read through it looking for the four loves, you'll find it there. So I don't want to spend the whole time on this, but let me give you my perception of it and then you can answer that as someone who's just steeped in Lewis and in this particular book for years now so when I read Till We Have Faces I found almost a contradiction there to the description of God that I find in Lewis's other stuff because Lewis has this theme that God is he's everywhere he's imminent he's undeniable and he's kind of chasing us down and he's you have to work hard to deny him right you have to work hard to hide from him so you have to sit there and kind of pace in purgatory and self-delusion and you're actually becoming less real every moment you do that you have to stop your ears and bend over like uncle andrew while aslan is Mm -hmm. talking to you and all you'll hear is roarings and growlings you have to be like the dwarves in the stable where Mm -hmm. aslan's like look at this this beautiful world around you and all the narnians are like you're you're in paradise what can you not understand and they're still thinking they're in the smelly stable so their hell their self-delusion is in their own heads they're the ones that are deluding themselves until we have faces perhaps because it's told from orwell's perspective it seems like to me the god there and he's co-opting a pagan myth the god there he's so coy he refuses to reveal himself even to his lover to the point where he's saying you're not allowed to see my face and then orwell convinces her to psyche to bring the lamp in and look at his face and then he flees and then she has to find him again so it's like this god is it seems like he's the opposite in so many ways of the god i meet elsewhere in lewis what do you think about that Yeah, well, I think that what happens, I think a little bit with that, is we fall for Orwell, who is, if you kind of read her as screw tape. We feel sorry for uh, her, too. Yeah, and she wants you to. She feels incredible self-pity. But on the first page of book two, which is the last four chapters of the novel, there's this really key quote. And she says, you know what? Not many days have passed since I wrote the words, no answer. I should unroll my scroll again. It's this book-length complaint against the gods, where she kind of shows how the gods are so cruel. She says, I should unroll my scroll again. I should start from the beginning, but there's no time because I'm so old. To leave it thus would be to die perjured. Well, to commit perjury means to give false testimony. And what she's doing is, you know, it's kind of a courtroom and she's asking people to judge between gods and men. And what actually happens once you see what Orwell has been doing the gods, the God of love, and her son, the God of love, have actually been trying to love her through everything they can for the whole novel. And she's been hard-hearted. And it's just like what you were referring to, the great divorce. You know, the people who won't be taken in, like the dwarves. Lewis said that there are two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Right. In Problem of Pain, Lewis says that the gates of hell are locked, but from the inside. Hmm. And so... Orwell finally realizes she's been lying to herself and the gods really love her and that she could possibly love them back. And that even the thought of loving the gods overwhelms her. She bows in worship and she dies. But she dies in relationship with the god of love. 
And so Lewis is doing this kind of profoundly mythological flipping upside down so that we can puzzle it out and flip it right side up, which is what he does in screw tape and Narnia and everywhere else. Maybe I just need to reread it. It's time. <laughs> well, let's move on to something else here. What's the most important Lewis work for our generation? Because it seems like there's applicable stuff in every single one of his books. But if you could tell our generation caught up in our issues to read one Lewis book and thoroughly digest it, what would it be? Oh my gosh. Because I think The Four Loves is a really good candidate, but what do you think? Yeah. Well, properly understood, I think that Tilly have faces. I think he writes Four Loves because people didn't understand what he was doing in Tilly have faces. And so I think that that by far is the most profound. Four Loves for me was one of the most important books I've ever read as an adult mm. because it showed me about relationship. I think that in some ways it depends on it depends on where you are. Right. Well, Lewis says what you see depends a great deal on where you stand. It also depends a great deal on what sort of person you are. And so when people ask me, hey, what should I read? I often will ask them, well, what are you in the mood for? What are your concerns? What are you looking for? One of the most timely things just in our day and age is this wonderful essay in The Weight of Glory. He wrote a little essay called Learning in Wartime. Mm. And He's talking to Oxford University students about why we should pursue a humane education when the war is going on. And you could substitute COVID for right. wartime. And he says that one of the great enemies of our age is excitement. He says, excitement, the tendency to think and feel about COVID or about politics or about whatever else, when we had intended to think about our work. The best defense is that this, as in everything else, these things have not really raised up a new enemy, but only aggravated an old one. Listen to this. There are always plenty of rivals to our work. We are always falling in love or quarreling, looking for jobs or fearing to lose them, getting ill and recovering, following public affairs. If we let ourselves, we shall always be waiting for some distraction or other to end before we can really get down to our work. The only people who achieve much are those who want knowledge so badly that they seek it while conditions are still unfavorable. Favorable conditions never come. It's never the right time. I remember that particular essay and the way he opens it up, it was so compelling. It's like, well, you're here wondering why the heck you're studying this stuff in the middle of a war. It seems like, you know, the most important thing to do right now would be fighting the enemy. But you're here doing something equally vital, which is learning what we're fighting for, what it is we're trying to preserve. I mean, that was just, wow. Mm -hmm. By the end of it, I was mm -hmm. so thoroughly convinced because it's at the beginning, the objection seems super plausible, but by the end, you're like, no, learn, you know, preserve yeah. the heritage yeah. of civilization. <laughs> Absolutely. Good art must be created if for no other reason than to combat bad art. Bad art. Right. right. Another essay that really has been speaking to the time and Gospel Coalition, I think, has published about it is on living in an atomic age. And he talks about the fear of the atomic bomb and what we should do with those fears and how we should approach things. I don't know, maybe most timely, always timely is the screw tape letters because he deals with a bunch of different issues, but he also deals with how to deliberately change that perception and take the self and put it second. And that's his definition of love is to go out of oneself towards someone else. So to humble itself and to turn toward the other in a variety of ways. This is what Lewis defines as love, but it's everywhere. So I would have your listeners try a few different Lewis books. Go to Barnes & Noble, pick out a few, read the first couple of pages. I think Lewis gives us permission. He said he'd never read more than a page and a half of a book he didn't enjoy. 
And so if you don't enjoy it, man, there's not nearly enough time. And if you can't get into Lewis, pick up Tolkien and you'll be well on your way. Let's talk about Lewis and Tolkien and their formative friendship there. I mean, I, I can never really forgive Tolkien for what he says about the Chronicles of Narnia because he was kind of, <laughs> of a, a mythical snob, you know. But how was that friendship vital? I mean, you talk in one particular YouTube video about how Lewis midwifed the Lord of the Rings into existence. And then, of course, Tolkien was largely responsible for Lewis's own conversion. Walk us through that friendship and then help us understand how good friendship can bring forth great things into the world. Yeah, you know, that to me is one of the most vital topics that really speaks to our age because I think friendship is undervalued. A lot of times in our culture, same-sex friendship is sexualized. But the idea of friendship as a main course in the Feast of Love is really undervalued. And reading the chapter on friendship before loves, I think is a vital kind of eye-opener. Lewis says that friends stand shoulder to shoulder next to each other, looking at the same thing the same way. And that doesn't really matter whether you're talking about NASCAR or quilting or books or whatever, history or shark's teeth or whatever it is. If you oh. find somebody that loves the same, yeah. You know me well now. Yeah, that's I did your research. <laughs> I did. When we find somebody who loves the things that are deepest to us and they love them the same way, man, we're going to go away from the crowd, not to be rude, but just because we don't want to be rude to the crowd. Mm. And Lewis and Tolkien, their friendship didn't start out auspiciously. Lewis comes home from a faculty meeting in 1926 and wrote in his diary that Tolkien only needed a smack or so to set him right. <laughs> later calls him one of the second rank of friends, but they became really great friends around mythology. They read Norse myths together. They had a passion for writing together. And they soon realized that the things that they cared most about, even though Lewis was an atheist and Tolkien was a Catholic, myth really brought them together. And Tolkien really kind of helped Lewis see that all myth belongs to God. And that Lewis's favorite myths were in some ways precursor to Christianity, which taken as a myth, not meaning a lie, really kind of opened Lewis's eyes. And so Lewis returned the favor by reading every single page of the Lord of the Rings in manuscript. And that's not just the thousand published pages. There were 12 volumes of false starts. I've got them on my bookshelf. And Lewis heard every single word. And Tolkien said that if it weren't for Lewis's constant encouragement, the Lord of the Rings wouldn't have been started, finished, or brought to publication. So many so, writers need a Lewis in their lives because I suffer from the same problem that Tolkien did, which I wish I suffered from some of his uh, virtues, but I suffer from the same problem <laughs> of not being able to finish anything. I just start right. stuff. And, you know, his son has dedicated his whole life to finishing his dad's unfinished work. So it's, <laughs> yes, yes, we really need that. No, God rest his soul. There's been some recent work. Um, Diana Glyer has got a book called Bandersnatch. Hmm which is kind of a popular edition of her scholarly book about Lewis and Tolkien as writers in community. And she spent 23 years reading every word by Lewis, Tolkien, and all of their literary friends. And she talks about how they collaborated together. And the art of collaboration, as in some ways, kind of the art of love, the art of friendship and fellowship, and also how creative that is and reminiscent echoing of how God allows us to create alongside with it. And so she looks at the roles that they have as resonator, as critic, as encourager, and the way that they took things, the same thing seriously. And he said, you know, friends don't have to agree. One of my second friend is the one who loves everything I love, 
and loves it in exactly the wrong way. You know, if somebody loves Narnia, but their favorite character is the White Witch, we could have splendid fights. And I would love that person better than the person who is kind of agnostic about Lewis and Tolkien. You've said somewhere else that Lewis wrote as much for the ear, or maybe even more for the ear than for the eye. What do you mean by that? You know, that advice comes from Letters to Children, which is a great little volume, one of my wife's favorites. And having spent time with Lewis's friend and former secretary, Walter Hooper, I was at his house for tea once, and Walter said that what Lewis would do, he would use a dip pen. And so he would dip into the inkwell, and while he was dipping, he would think about the next four or five words. And then as he was writing, he would mouth the words out kind of under his breath. And you get about five or six words, and then you go and dip again. And so Lewis knew, especially that his story, his fairy tales were going to be read aloud, but he was also a failed poet. His poetry didn't really get much acclaim, but he loved poetry and he loved the sound of words aloud. And by all accounts, I've spoken with a former student of Lewis's, his lectures were brilliant. And so the spoken word booming out in that great voice of his was really important. And so as part of the compositional process, I always would encourage my high school students to print out a copy and read it out loud to someone else as mm. if it meant something. And I think the same thing can be done with the Bible. I mean, I think that including an oral, a heard component right. really makes those things come alive. By the way, if you want to hear that booming voice of Lewis's, the best thing I can recommend is it's right there on YouTube. It's free. It's the longest recording I think that exists of him. He's reading the four loves and it's, you know, his voice the entire time. Having Lewis read you his own work is pretty incredible. And one of the surprises that I had first hearing him, I think it was a, one of the surviving recordings from Mere Christianity. And I was surprised he sounded like a male Margaret Thatcher, just like mm -hmm. this. I was expecting an Irish accent because of his, yeah. of his history, but he has nothing of an Irish accent. It's like a, it's sort of this regal sounding voice like this, you know, I'm going to talk to you tonight about the curious subject of prayer. Yep, and prah. I had to look up what prayer. <laughs> well, it was kind of an Oxonian accent. It was an Oxford accent. Right, and that's what I've heard. Somewhere in his letters, he jokes about when he would go back to his home in Northern Ireland, in Belfast, he would jump in the cab and start out in an Oxonian accent and then switch to a low, broad Irish accent before the end of the cab ride, just to mess with the cabbie. <laughs> that's too cool. So, uh, but yeah, those, his voice is great. The cadence you're talking about, here's the passage that comes to mind every time someone talks about the oral cadence, the, the way of writing that's really meant for speech. And this is from chapter three of Mere Christianity. I love how he does this. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him, hear his claim, to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and call him a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Final punch there. <laughs> I love that Absolutely. sort of descending funnel of sentence length where you get right down to the final punch. And he does that again and again throughout his works. So, so I love that. I think He's, it's something yeah. Christian writers could learn from today. Absolutely. Well, you can tell that he was one of the most popular uh, lecturers at Oxford and Cambridge. Hmm. His former student told me that the bicycles would be piled three deep 
outside the lecture hall and people would be like, oh yeah, that's where Lewis is talking. Incidentally, if your listeners are fans of the Lord of the Rings and you remember Treebeard, uh, Fangorn, he's got this big boom, shroom, shroom, the booming voice. It's said that Tolkien took the inspiration for that voice from hearing Lewis time after time. So Lewis is in the Lord of the Rings. He's treebeard, uh-huh. and he's telling us not to be hasty about anything. <laughs> and then I understand, maybe this is incorrect, tell me if I'm off base here, that Ransom, the philologist in the Space Trilogy, is kind of supposed to be Tolkien. There's some elements. There's absolutely okay. some elements of that. Elwin means elf friend, and he's a philologist, which is a professor, a student of words, and that's what Tolkien's profession was. And so, yeah, there's absolutely some elements of his friends uh, there. And so you could see that when Lewis read the space trilogy, the Out of the Silent Planet and Carolandra, especially, to the Inklings, they probably had a laugh. And some of his other friends show up. So like Dr. Humphrey Havard, hmm. Robert E. Havard was another Inkling and a friend of theirs. And Dr. Havard is in the cosmic romances too. So yeah, they're all over. This can sound so overwhelming, I imagine, to someone who's not that deep into Lewis's corpus of work, or maybe even doesn't know him as anyone other than the guy who came up with Aslan. Where do you start with C.S. Lewis? Because this guy is just so influential in Christianity in the 20th century, and he's so relevant to our time. If you were talking to someone who's just looking at the giant stack of C.S. Lewis books and essays and says, where do I start? Where would you advise them to start? You know, that's a great question. I actually get it all the time when I'm giving talks or talking to folks about Lewis. And I think that there are a couple of different jumping off places. The advice I gave earlier, read a couple of pages. And if it doesn't grab you right away, just go ahead and give yourself permission not to finish it. I got too many books that I should read on my stack. And if I'm reading for my own pleasure and development, I want to at least start out with things that that draw me. For some folks, especially as adults, it may be time to start rereading the Narnians because in many ways, those were his most mature works. These are not things that he did after he got done with his apologetic career. Uh, So start with Narnia in the correct order, line which in the order of first. For others, Screwtape Letters is going to be a great kind of way in. And there's one topic per letter and you can read them in about 10 or 15 minutes. For others, uh, mere Christianity is going to be a classic place to start. When it comes to mere Christianity, because these were radio broadcasts originally, what I always advise people is that they read it slowly, out loud, maybe to someone else, and they stop after a chapter and think about and talk about what they read. I learned how to think from reading and trying to understand mere Christianity. Hmm. Because when I read it really fast, and in Great Gobbets, you know, five pages in, he says, and thirdly, have no idea where one and two were. Let me go back and find them. And that's what I did. And that taught me how to think. So The Great Divorce is another place. In fact, in my book, Mere Christians, Chuck Colson graciously allowed us to use his account about Lewis in there. Um, People kind of get into Lewis in all kinds of ways. What I would do is give them a try. Perhaps the most fetching, though, it's a long way around to a short question. His collected letters or even his single volume of letters is a really great kind of roomy place to just open it anywhere and read. Lewis, after the popularity of Screwtape Letters, answered every single letter he ever received, which is about 50,000 letters in his time. I can't even get to my inbox on my email. But he considered it his Christian duty and had kind of a discipleship, spiritual mentor relationship with a lot of people. 
And so there are a few different volumes of his letters, um, letters to an American lady, letters to children, but just the one volume of letters and just kind of open it anywhere. And because he was writing so many letters, he would, his advice was terse, it was short, it was really impactful, full of good humor, generosity, humility, and great wit. And so that's often a, a good place to start. Amazing. My guest today has been Andrew Lazo, author, speaker, and all-around C.S. Lewis expert. We've been talking about Jack himself, why he has such an enduring appeal, and why he's worth reading more than ever today. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me today on Upstream. It's been a really rich conversation. What a joy, Shane. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Upstream with Shane Morris. For resources and more commentary on Christianity and culture, visit colsoncenter.org. Upstream with Shane Morris is a production of the Colson Center Podcast Network. I hope you all enjoyed that. Next Thursday, I'll be broadcasting another episode of the Upstream podcast where Andrew appeared. But on Tuesday, Andrew is going to be hosting a book shopping show with Stephen and Gordon talking about buying first editions. So please join us then when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers.